Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Radio. Not long ago, there used to be two types of comedians, comedians and female comedians. Today, there are so many women making us laugh that the qualifier has been rendered obsolete. Saturday Night Live deserves a lot of the credit for this development. The show has introduced us to Gilda Radner, Jan Hooks, Maya Rudolph, Tina Fey, and Kristen Wiig, to name just a few. But there's been another woman at SNL, a woman who's been quietly working day after day for 17 years, often without sleeping, to usher in this reality. 17 years I've been there, yep. Paula Pell was working at a Florida theme park when she got her dream job as a writer at Saturday Night Live. Because the show has such a wide comedic range, it's the perfect challenge for Paula. You've got the hard-hitting news parodies, and then on the other end... You know, it's got fart jokes, it's got everything in it of the low parts of comedy, mostly (laughs) me being responsible for Tylenol BM of Alec Baldwin taking taking a shit in a bed while he's sleeping. Yeah. Tylenol BM releases a gentle sleep aid into your system that allows deep, restful sleep for up to 10 hours. So deep, it turns off your brain's need to control the bodily functions most likely to wake you. Rachel was like, did you just shit yourself? I've slept like a baby. Don, did you the bed? <sighs> you tell me. You tell oh, me. Oh, you tell me. I said, That's you right. tell me. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> In her memoir, Bossy Pants, Tina Fey writes that her proudest moment as head writer at SNL was fighting for one of Pell's sketches. Introducing Kotex Classic. Classic Kotex is a commercial for the feminine protection of yesteryear, featuring sexy women proudly encumbered with bulky pads connected to belts peeking out of their clothes. I always know it's there. You can't beat the original. Them girls are old school. Paula Pell, in person, is genuine, charming, and easy. The kind of person you might actually talk to if you sat next to her on a plane, which, for those of you not in the industry, is not a description of the typical comedy writer. I was always a bit of a class clown. I was I was a good Catholic girl, so I always wanted to be... I never wanted to get in trouble, but I really pushed the envelope because I would be funny in class, and I'd do things like one of my teachers, I would... Um, do a bit where I would go by him and drag my hand along the chalk line, you know, the chalk shelf. Right. And then I'd come over and I'd say, you know, Mr. Gersh, you're just a really great teacher. And I'd pat him on the back and I'd leave like a handprint. <laughs> he'd let me make him a little bit the fool for a moment. Yeah. And then he'd do, you know, he looked like Rob Reiner and All in the Family. He had the big bushy mustache and the long right. hair. He and played he, along. He just kind of looked to camera three, you know, non-existent. <laughs> and the audience would, you know, the audience, the class sure. would, would crack up or I'd pass notes and say, when I sneeze, because I have a really good fake sneeze, and I would say, when I sneeze, everybody fall off their chairs. And, you know, I'd always be doing something. But I grew up with an extremely funny dad, and my mom is What did he do for a living? He worked for Illinois Bell. We grew up in Illinois and then moved to Orlando when I was a teenager. But my entire childhood, my grandpa was a a watchmaker for West Clocks. So my dad always learned that from my grandpa. And then when he came to Florida, he worked for AT&T for many years. 
And then when he retired, he became a teacher of watch repair, watchmaking, all all of it. So how does the guy who works for the phone company and how does he and he becomes a watch tinkerer? How was the funny in his life? Was well, he was at he's, home? he's just ungodly witty. He's he's really— uh, But never wanted to be in the business himself, or did he express I to mean, you that he did? I mean, he probably did, but, you know, I look at all the people in my family and all the relatives of different generations, and they all had their thing. You know, my mom has a beautiful singing voice. They all had something that they wanted to do, but the way they grew up was you just— you know, you have kids early and you, you kind of figure out what you need to do to pay for that. And and so they, you know, a lot of times didn't have the luxury that kids have now, even though it's hard to get a job, to say, you know, oh, I'm doing this. And I'm what was getting wrong a with you, Paula, that you didn't sign on to that program? What was wrong with you? <laughs> well, I— That they, you wouldn't they, just do what you were supposed to do. They knew that I was pretty hopeless. I mean, at my <laughs> confirmation where you get the Holy Spirit, yeah. I came down the stairs at my party and had torn like 80 holes in my panties and said I had the Holy Spirit and just would do things like that all the time, you know. And this was before I drank or smoked anything. Yeah. I was always a total ham, but my dad really taught me that. He's the king of, like, I will tell you that one of the hardest times I laughed at him is my mom and I were watching Die Hard on television. My dad's cutting the yard, and he's outside cutting the yard. He's got his little jean shorts on and his tank top, and he keeps coming in and walking by and kind of half listening. He's a really good, quiet half listener, but then he'll do something based on what he's been listening to. I you know, was listening to my mom, and, and the the terrorist had the long blonde hair, you know, the big, like, kind of Nordic guy at the beginning. Yeah, the ballet dancer. Yeah, and my mom says, you know, I don't know, but I don't like long hair, but that is pretty foxy, and she's, like, commenting <laughs> on him. So we're laughing about it and everything, and then, I'm not kidding, like, an hour later, my dad just walked through. He had gone in my room and gotten a wig that I had of all my shit in my room, put a long wig on with just his grass-cutting stuff and just walk through. He didn't stop. He didn't do a bit. He just walked through. They also knew that rule, like the, you keep the ball in the air and play along. They were good. Yes. Without the, the training, they were good improv people. Oh, yeah. The answer's he, always he's yes. He's the king of like a prop. He'll just, and what I love about it is my parents are in their 70s now and, you know, and my mom was always like, you'd say, you know, you go, oh, God, dad is so funny. And she goes, thank God. Thank God he's funny. <laughs> We had so much laughter in our house, you know, despite any any dysfunction as any family, we always laugh. You where, know? Did you, where did you go to college? I went to college at University of Tennessee. I first went to a local college in Orlando, a community college for two years. So you, you moved to Florida? I moved to Florida. My dad went down for AT&T for that antitrust suit that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, when they we, broke up the, the phone system. Yeah, it was like seven, late 70s. 70s. You know, we had gone a few times down to Disney World with our little pop-up camper, and, like, that was a vacation place. That wasn't a place you move. And my parents sent us a little—brought back a little Polaroid of the house they bought, and it was, you know, about $70,000, but it had this gigantic pool because in Orlando, so many people have pools, even with, you know, inexpensive houses. And we just thought we won the lottery. You know, it was just insane. But we got there, and it was really hard the first year. How so? I just never liked to be— I mean, I think being new is a very important thing to do for, for growth. I think it really galvanizes a lot of stuff inside you of who you are and everything. And I'm glad in hindsight. But I used to just wake up in the morning and just cry. And, you know, just because I had so much familiarity and comfort with all the kids that I went to school with, it's just I was always quiet at first, you know. And then by my senior year, I got really involved in school. And the girls, you know, would go— because I remember when you'd come in, you know, you came in your junior year, and I'd say, oh, really? 
Really? Because I came in my sophomore year and sat next to you for an entire class, right. and you were, you know, a cold right. little asswipe to me. But, you know, that's all right now. <laughs> we're friends. And and what was the difference for you in terms of the people, if you can, if you can characterize? Well, I mean, from Illinois to Florida. I mean, Florida, well, I'm the sure, biggest, was a lot different. I mean, one thing that really helped me was I was always – I always sang. So I went in immediately into a concert choir. And so that was wonderful because then I had a social group pretty quickly – But the one thing about Florida that was so different that freaked me out was that, you know, I never thought I was growing up in Illinois in necessarily, I mean, a cold sort of atmosphere. It was emotionally warm. I had great friends, you know, my family warm. But when I got to Florida, everybody hugged constantly. Really? I would have thought it was the other way Everyone was so affectionate in such a crazy way that I remember saying, it's— Take your hands off me. I remember coming home and going— Stop cupping my nipples, uh, tenor. I don't know you in the choir. No, but people would. Um, I kept thinking it was the, our director's birthday or something. I was like, "What the hell is going on in here?" Everyone is hugging our teacher, hugging each other. I realized it was just that was just the way everyone did, you know. And then my girl, my um, who eventually became my girlfriend of many years, was my best friend in high school, and we were very huggy, and that all worked out. <laughs> Yeah. It was, so no, was it the right person, not no, the teacher? Not until after we graduated, Exactly. Though. Then then you went to the college down there? I went to the college for two years down there. And, and it was studied a, what? Um, well, their theater department was amazing. Their art department was incredible, and I was a, also an artist. What was it called? Seminole State? Seminole Community College. But, uh, I mean, the heads of those departments and the music department were so incredible that today they still are some of my, you know, favorite people that have, I've ever to to gotten taught. Um, because my art professor, Grady Kimsey, who I'm a really good friend with still, he had gone to UT years and years ago, just kept saying, you got to go check out UT. And then my girlfriend was going to North Carolina, so it kind of, you know, I'd go up and visit, and I'd never been up in those mountains, and I just fell in love with it Did up you? there because I'm such a nature freak, and, yeah, I went crazy for it. And when you left there, what happened? And then I, I finished college, and I came home, and I worked at the theme parks. What's that like? How do you get the job at Disney? Like, who's... Is there somebody who's like a casting person, well, a talent the cool, director? Yeah, there's talent people. And, you know, I had worked with a, an improv group called SAC Theater in Orlando. They, at the time, contracted out to Disney. So they did all the, like, in Epcot in Italy, the Commedia dell'arte. You know, they would do all the comedy that's kind of the roaming atmospheric comedy. And then they built Pleasure Island, which was the nighttime Disney you know, all the nightclubs. Pleasure Island. Pleasure Island. Welcome. Come. Mickey has no pants on. <laughs> it was New Year's Eve every night. Mickey slipped your roofie. <laughs> Pleasure Island. An entire island they built that had all these clubs. They had like a big discotheque. They had a country western sort of music club. It was just kind of like a strip of nighttime establishments, but all in Disney. But it was late night. And they're kind were, of a downtown feel, like a yeah, cluster, like yeah. South Street Seaport. And they would towns, have like New Year's Eve every night. So the, they'd have dancers <laughs> come out and they'd dance. And it was really a fabulous place to work as a young actor because it felt cool and I could and I did a lot of improvisation but then we also did like radio shows and singing we could be kind of dirty I mean it wasn't filthy I didn't I didn't go full tilt my typical filth yeah. that you know of yeah you didn't well. pal out I didn't pal out <laughs> 
but you would interact with the guests. So they're, you know, you'd be sitting there with some old British dude who's getting drunk and just get into a conversation. And I played Pamelia Perkins, the president of the Adventurers Club, and it was kind of a Teddy Roosevelt era sort of place. And I had this big bouffant. And I could just be as bawdy as hell. I mean, I would get on guys' laps and, you know, have my legs up in the air because I was like a matron sort of character. And we used to have such a blast. But then also during that time, I went um, down Penis Avenue for about two years. <laughs> I was dating men for a little while. And I would hook up with people. I mean, just meeting, like, yeah, different people. I'd meet, yeah. well, just guests. And, you know, you'd meet some super, super charismatic, handsome person. And you'd be sitting there laughing and you'd be in costume. And then they'd be like, what are you guys doing after? You yeah, know, what do the we, characters? What, what do these characters do next? And there was a restaurant, and there were bars down the street that they would let us after work go to. So you just take, change all your clothes, and you know, yeah. blow dry the shit out of your hair, and go. Yeah. Now I'm 25 again, and I'd walk down there and. And, um, and it was New Year's Eve every day. It was New Year's Gotta Eve. So bang you vomited. The you vomited every day and lost your virginity every day. <laughs> yes. What was the character's name? Pamelia. Pamelia Perkins. Pamelia. Pamelia Perkins. Of course, she's banging the guests two at a time. <laughs> it, I mean, for an actor at that time, I was making really good money and had full insurance. Everything had a car. Rented a little house. You know, it was Having kind of plenty like of a, fun. It was. It was a beautiful Blow life. Blow drying your hair. It was a beautiful life. And then I got stir crazy with it, and that was just about when but the SNL you, thing happened. But but how does so how does that happen? How do they find you? It how was do they find it you? was a beautifully random, amazing thing. I had worked with Sac Theater. They had a, a theater downtown. They uh, would call me every so often, and I'd go do a set with them where I'd I'd do a character that I had written. And so they said, you know, we're going to do this sketch comedy pilot called Chucklehead. And they said, will you be in it and do those characters? And I said, sure. I mean, I was doing like I got beat up in America's Most Wanted. You know, all the local, all the things that were shooting in Orlando I would do, you know. And I did this lottery character for years in about three states that was uh, played the Wurlitz Oregon. You know, sexy characters, Alec, you know. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All from the Matron Handbook. I was born at 50, Alec. Yes. But um, they called me. My agent called me one day, and she said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. She said, Saturday Night Live saw that pilot. Lauren wants to meet you. And I'm like, okay. Are you defecating? For what? And she goes, now, it is not an audition, but he wants to fly you up and talk to you. And I'm like, well, what is it? An orgy? <laughs> right, right. Am I being summoned? It's for, Mickey Mouse. It's, it's Pleasure like, Island. What in the F? And I said, okay. And so I flew <laughs> up there, you know, talk about defecating. I mean, it was like yeah. Im- Imodium City well, the entire two days of getting there. He was two hours, you know, or three hours late for, yes. for the meeting. But he was super nice. And I sat with Marcy Klein and Ayala in the talent room. And I was so nervous that they ordered food and they said, um, we're ordering Zen Palette, you know, vegetarian. We're ordering Zen Palette. Do you want anything? And I said, just a, just like a cup of white rice would yeah. be good. Just yeah. like rice. <laughs> and I just got a dry cup of white rice and sat and ate it. I went in and he said, we have just cleaned house. It was 95. It was when Will Ferrell and everybody came. He said, we've cleaned house. We're starting over. You know, it's going to rise again, we're hoping, and we're going to try to infuse it with new talent. And uh, we would like to hire you to be a writer. 
And I was like, oh, well, I've never done that. I, you know, I don't even, I mean, I didn't even use a computer at that point. And I said, I can't, you know. And if you tell them you can't, then they will, <laughs> you will right. keep saying, well. And he said, well, we'll show you, you know. No, we have people for that. But it was so quick that it made me worry that there was something wrong. Like there was a scam or something like this was right. all some kind of freaking joke because I, I was like, this can't be. And How so, soon after that were you moving to New York? Um, I had five days to move. Packed up my whole life, gave my animals to my mom temporarily. Said farewell to Pleasure Island. Went up to New York City and, um, you know, just was just ungodly miserable and, I mean, with fear. But Mike Shoemaker called me right before I left because I was starting to freak out to the point of going, I'm going to my dream place. I mean, I was obsessed with SNL when I was little. I used to audio tape it. I used to perform Roseanne, Rosanna Dana for my high school in the auditorium. And I thought, I'm just going to be sitting around with like, you know, 10 Harvard dudes looking at me going, who the fuck is Eating Kathy? White ba- rice. Who, are, who hired Kathy Bates light? And, you know, <laughs> and why is she here? And I adore Kathy Bates, by the way. Yeah. But they were just, you know, I thought they I would be so not of their world of these writerly sort of people. And I didn't realize how many writers there are performers. And so Shoemaker called me, and I still uh, thank him for this because he really is the reason that I ended up getting the balls to get there. But he called and he said, some people want to say hi. And it was, you know, Cindy Caponera and Lori Nasso and all these people that were new that were terrified. And they all got on the phone going, we can't wait to meet you. And I hung up the phone and I just burst into tears. I said, it's all going to be okay, no matter what. It's going to be okay. And it was. It's just a group of people. It's almost like of all the years of doing plays, it's like it's a new cast. You're 17 years. You're getting in a cast. 17 years I've been there. Yep. 17. And how's it changed? Well, I think in general, comedy has gotten a little, you know, it's gone through its ebbs and flows in terms of. Things being more character driven or, or, you know, more conceptual. I mean, I think that show always has a great amount of both. And I always loved the fact that that show had something for everybody. You know, I'd sit with a group of people that I, I'd love certain things and they'd love certain things. And so I to me, I, always I the like, weirder the better. Yeah, I love the ba- I, like I love the balance. You know, I love the balance of it. Um, but one of the biggest things that's changed in general to me is the internet because. When I was growing up and you were an actor, you had to create a body of work by really doing it and getting hired, and then they would give you access to tape of it. You know, you, you couldn't just go on machines and videotape yourself and make a beautifully edited, great comedy piece and put that on the Internet. I mean, it's, it you just can't do it. I mean, my, my reel, I just remember, you know, I do a tiny role in something and just love that I was adding that to my reel. And you'd have to go to like a video place and pay the guy to sit there and, and do it on the gigantic machine. The Internet has changed things profoundly. Yeah, it just it, and I think in, in a bad way, it gave people a sense of entitlement of there isn't as much awe of all of it because they do it themselves so it's like oh yeah i have you know this and i've done themselves. i've done my show you know they create it themselves which is very empowering and wonderful and it's also getting a lot more comedy out there of hilarious people that would never usually walk into a room but nervous in an audition right right but that's rare right so that, that seems to me to have been the condition for me which is uh, i'd come to snl and um the signals that i picked up in 1990 jan hooks and all that crowd mm-hmm. back then was, you know, my career wasn't that iconic to send up me and my career. And so it's not like I'm Stallone or Schwarzenegger or something like that where we do that. 
so you come in and right away you pick up, I've got to become like everybody else and become a member of the company. Right, right. And as soon as I got that, as soon as I kind of picked up that vibe from them, I was, you know, asked to come back and come back and come back. And what it does is, for me as a performer, it's killed everything else that's supposed to be funny. And I wonder what that's like for you, where you're in the world where you work with the funniest people. No matter what people say about SNL, you know, it's not always going to work. But when it works, it's, I still think it's the best. What's it been like for you? Well, you get so you get so insul- you know, isolated there in in great ways and and weird ways because it it's there's nothing like it. You cannot compare that experience with anything. But it really is so intense. And you, you know, I started writing movies two years ago and. Working into that, I realized how stretched out the time is to the point where, you know, I mean, we'll go between dress and air and Lauren will say, I don't like the whole top of that. Like add, you know, a couple yeah. new jokes. So you're, you're coming up with new jokes at 11.15. And- well, let, me, let me just put a finer point on that for our radio audience, our podcast audience, because um, that SNL does a full dress rehearsal at 8 o'clock on Saturday night with an audience with a lengthier show. And let's say normally they'd have seven sketches on the air show. They do like 11 sketches at eight, and they're going to pick what worked best, and then they're going to rewrite. So when that finishes at 10, maybe 10, 15, maybe 10, 30, who knows? It's a long show. It's a long show. And then you've got an hour where you're sitting in a room, and in that hour between shows, that's when Lorne and the producers and the writers edit that show and choose what they're going to do and ask for rewrites. And they're getting rid of that audience. They're bringing in a new one. The the band is warming up the new audience. And you'll walk through and have a task to change something, and you're walking by these people that are walking in to their seats looking like, I'm so excited I'm here. And you're like, I don't know what we're going to have for you, yeah. but we're going to yeah. do it right now. You know, I did a Bobby and Marty one time with Will and Anna, and they – found out that we were losing time quickly. And so they said, you have to take like two minutes out of this. I mean, it just, and it was between the commercial break. So I went downstairs and I was kneeling down with the cue card people. They were just putting tape over sections and we're like, okay, does that make sense? Does it, does and go with it? Drowning your children. And I'm pretty sure that (laughs) if like Dr. Oz did my actual age, you know how they test you on your actual, I'm probably 180 now because the stress of that, it's just such adrenaline and, you know, but I mean, the beautiful thing about SNL is hosts will come in and, and, you know, never you, because you were always very approachable. Whenever anyone asked me about hosts, I always tell them that, you know, you are always one of my favorite hosts. I'm not blowing air up your... Culo. Your culo. I'm gonna my look, wife is from I'm Spain. Gonna, I'm going to look so at that. What, what is culo and ass? Yeah. I oh. feel, well, well, yeah, if you're blowing smoke up, but well, it's obviously... I, it could, you have it's holes. It's not my furnace. You, men do have other holes. Well... But, like, you know, hosts will come in with their people, and, yes. and they're very nice and very scared. Stand over there, but they, they have a little bit of that sometimes because they're fearful, and they have people protecting sure. them. And by the end of the week, they're just always at that after party. You know, they're sitting with everybody and laying across yeah. everybody because it feels like theater. It feels like camp. I'm, I'm in theater camp and this is what I miss doing. More from Paula Pell in a moment. This is Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Paul Appel has been writing sketches at SNL for 17 years, but like any of us, sometimes she just gets tired of comedy. 
Oh my God, yeah. Like you just I want mean, to watch my, you know, my, the sorrow and the pity. No, my my gal of 14 years, she watches a lot of TV and she watches shows that I wouldn't generally watch like Castle or, you know, like Hawaii Five-0 or like Murder, <laughs> she, and she, I mean, um, you know, murder shows, CSI, NCIS, sure. she'll watch all, she'll tape, she'll tape all these shows in like elementary, all these new shows, and I'll, I'll get totally hooked on things and realize that I just love, I always loved having drama and comedy together. I mean, that's the fun thing about writing movies now is you can have a moment that's just a heart-wrenching moment in a comedy that's that's real, you know, that feels more three-dimensional. Because after 17 years of sketches, you do get a little stir-crazy with yeah. feeling like you're just writing something on, on the surface. I mean, it's great to make people laugh. But when I go home, I, I love to watch dramas or some reality things. I love to just not think about comedy too Yeah, much. I mean, I, I, I do the show and I go out there and it's really, um, and I'll say, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I can't be bothered with this, hosting this These ridiculous show. These people are show. too young. These people are all young and they're all crazy and they're all puerile and all they talk about is farts and brazeers and so forth. It's and been then, me. It's been, I'm going to go do As You Like It in the Park. Then, of course, you know, Lauren calls me. I'm like, nah, okay. Oh, yeah. Or he'll call me like I get thrown off the plane on American Airlines for, for playing words with friends. The phone rings like uh, three, four days later. It's Lauren. And he literally, <laughs> he literally, he literally goes, so perhaps we should do something. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you people are insane. This like, would be yeah, the week. Yeah. He said, this, that's it. <laughs> This would yeah, be the week. This would be the week, you know, it's like that thing where we have to do it now. now. But you can't say no to them. You, you feel like you're no. family. You, you just forget how immediate it is. You know, years ago I did a sketch with um, with a little young, little sweet-faced um, Justin Timberlake when he was in, in sync. I used to write a sketch called um, Six Degrees Celsius, and it was like a boy group. And Will Farrell was their manager, and he had to stay 300 feet away from them because clearly he had done some inappropriate things. He had tinted glasses, of course. You know, it was Jimmy <laughs> Fallon and Chris Kattan and Horatio, and they were and they were uh, and Chris uh, Chris Parnell, and they were a boy group. And then we'd have the host in it. Well, that week, NSYNC was there. We asked NSYNC to be another boy group in this competition on the show, playing a fake boy group. And so I wrote a song called Hold the Pickle, and it, they were like McDonald's <laughs> employees. And so NSYNC came out with like McDonald's outfits on and saying, hold the pickle. And they're so, they were so crazy talented. Like they got there and looked at it for 10 minutes and had full harmonies and full choreography. I mean, they threw that shit together. I was just amazed. They came on, and then you remember, what was the MTV thing every Sunday, like the big, I can't think of the name of it, but the show, the, like, show that they'd show all the videos and everything at that time. Do you remember what that no. was? Okay. Well, anyway, it was it was a very, <laughs> I do not. The big video show. You know, the big video show that the kids used to dance to. Um, but the next morning, I'm in my little apartment. And, you know, I probably ordered four entrees from some to-go things to eat my pain because you always did on Sunday. And I turned on the TV, and Justin Timberlake was on TV on the show at noon in Times Square. And there were just hundreds of girls down there waving to him, and they had a banner with the words to the song, Hold the Pickle, on the banner that they had painted. And I was looking at it going... That cannot be because we just did this. Like, I just woke up and we just – and then I just remembered, like, yeah. I used to get obsessed. You know, I didn't have the internet. I didn't have videos. 
But back in the day, I mean, my God, if I would have grown up in the internet era, I would have been <laughs> the queen of like, you know, just you mind that having my own now. fan site. Yeah, because yeah. I just loved it and I wanted – and we were having a funny conversation the other day in my journals when I was young. I would talk about Rocky because I was obsessed with Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, and um, the very first Rocky movie. And I would talk about like in two weeks, People magazine's going to have an article about him. And I would wait until we got that magazine, and then I would take it home, and I'd cut it out and put it in a script. You know, you you had to wait to get information or a photo of someone. Or if you really loved a singer, you had to wait for their album to come sure. out. And now you just, oh, you just absorb it. I'm four it. years older than you are. I remember when I was a kid, there was no cable. There was no mm-hmm. DVD. The, the trailers for movies and the, and the buildup, the ramp-up of a campaign to advertise a film— was or at least it seemed so far reaching back then. And I'll never forget we went to the Godfather and I was underage and we we snuck in. I forget how now. We stood in line and it was like three screenings, you know, like one o'clock, four o'clock, seven o'clock, and you go to the top of the line and didn't get in. So you waited another three hours, you know, reading Mad Magazine or some crap we read back then. And I always say, and now mo- people wait to stream a movie, and it's like you know four minutes to stream it, and they're tapping their foot and going, "Come yeah, on!" Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Just, and the other thing is that they'll watch twenty minutes of it, then they'll pause and they'll go talk on the phone, right. and they'll go play. They lose uh, some interest game. in it. Yeah. Now you are you left to do a television show. I left. I left about six years ago to do. Uh, I wrote a pilot called Thick and Thin that was about two fat sisters that grew up fat, and one gets really hot and thin. And beautiful. Who was it for? NBC. For NBC. Yeah. We shot the pilot. It got picked up for like 13, but it was a bad year for multi-camera sitcoms. It was kind of when they were getting phased out. And it was also about a subject that was a little weird still back in that era of, you know, there wasn't a whole bunch of stuff with weight stuff. And I really wanted like real people that look fat, you know, that look fat because yeah. I had struggled with my weight all my life and lost huge amounts of weight a couple times in my life. Sharon Glass and Martin Mull played the parents and they played my parents. So it was their names. They did all of my dad's shtick. I mean, it was really a special thing. My parents came to the pilot and, they, you know, it was it was very emotional and wonderful and fun. But the process of developing a, sh- a network show like that is so hard. And sure. I really, in hindsight, learned so, you know, learned so many things after the fact. You know, What's I did- one thing you learned that you can say? What did you learn? Um, well, the biggest thing I learned was I'm a, I'm a people pleaser, and I always like to get to know people and see the good sides of them. And I wanted to have a lot of positive energy with, the, with them because I had known so many people that developed stuff that were like, welcome to hell. You know, everyone yeah. just gets so negative about it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go into this. I'm so lucky to be doing this. I'm so thrilled. But I befriended everyone so intensely, you know, especially like network people and everything. I befriended everyone. So then there was this sort of discomfort at telling them things they didn't want to hear or me pushing back in bigger ways. Right. And so, because I had already established that we're all just friends and we're all having fun yeah. and we're laughing. Then they would suggest things conflict. that were just show ruining. And I would just be like, 
okay, well, you know, and I, I just at the time didn't really have my voice as a as a creative person to lead something like that, you know. Right. So I, I regret that, and I regret not um, pushing more. I mean, casting was, you know, a little brutal just because of the weight thing. Is they would, they would bring people in that were I wanted real people that were, you know, I wanted the other sister to you be the to be a real heavy person, and and when they'd audition heavy people, sometimes I'd watch their faces when they're auditioning them, and they're kind of like looking at their bodies, and I'm going, this is not good. That they don't get it that like the you know. Roseanne was friggin' huge hit show. It's like, come on. I don't even remember who said this to me, but one of the network people pulled me aside during one of the castings and she said, did you audition this other girl for that part for the heavy sister? And I said, no, I auditioned her for the thin sister. And she said, you couldn't pad her, could you? And I just remember walking away going, this is so dead in the water. You know? yeah. Now, movies. You're doing a movie now. Yeah, I did. I worked a little bit on Bridesmaids. I just came a couple different times and just, you know, pitched jokes on the set, did that kind of thing. Had never done anything movie-wise ever. And I really, really had fun doing it. I really enjoyed it. And then I uh, Judd started hiring me to do some rewrites on different movies and punch-ups and stuff. And I started to see... You know, because I had tried to get into it before in other eras of my life. Um, but at the same time, I had had an idea for a while about um, my journal, my childhood journal, of doing something with it. I'd wanted to do a little play based on it. I'd wanted to do something with it. And Tina had, you know, I'd read it to her many times in SNL. I'd read it to people before. I came up with an idea for a movie to do. Uh, to pitch, and I pitched it to Universal, and they bought it with Tina attached to it as a producer and potentially to be in it. And so I wrote that. That's in the works, and we're waiting to find out all the finals on you know on that. What's happening with that? It's it's um it's been you know gone through its rewrites and all that. So I'm excited about that about two sisters. And then uh, Judd and I just wrote a movie. And then last summer I worked on my first full movie experience with This Is Forty. I was the executive producer on that. This sounds horrible, but do you ever wonder what it would be like if you and your wife were separated by something bigger? death, like her death. I have given it a, a fair amount of thought. Not in any painful way, but just like a gentle floating off. It's got to be peaceful. I mean, this is the mother of your children. And then the new wife would be great. God, I can't wait to meet my second wife. I hope she likes me better than this one. I've finally kind of gotten my foothold in the movie thing now, and it's like it. really fun. I really love it. I mean, it's a right lot people. of it's a yeah. lot of waiting around for news on things. It's a lot of you know, I can't plan anything because you don't know what your next year is going to be until in a you find way. out. But so beautiful to be able to work at home with my animals and D and just like. To be, you, you know, are a home buddy, aren't you? Well, you always come back to the same thing when I've spoken to you. When yeah. you left, I was despondent when you left because you know it was, you were such a great, you're such a great writer. You're one of my Thank favorite you, writers of all time. You're so sweet. funny. No, but I really mean that. But and and you, uh, and then when you left and, and you said the same thing, you're like, oh, I just want to go home to D and my animals. My animals. And my animals. I want to go live the lesbian life. I want to be on a lesbian farm. I want to wear my dance-go clogs. I want to get a, a mag light and go under a dumpster and get some feral cats out of there. Uh, I I have a horse up there. I have, you know, just it's so beautiful and inexpensive up there at the Hudson Valley. It's, it's like an amazing place. But also um, just I'm realizing, too, just the the finite amount of time. You know, I've, I've spent more time since I've been doing the movie stuff the last two years. I've spent more time with my family. I've been down in Florida a lot to visit them. It's just feeling so much 
better for me. And also, I love like Lauren. Whenever I'm there, I did the Louis C.K. show, and I'm I'm doing this uh, next two here. And um, and you know, Lauren will say to me, "It's still fun, right? It's fun. You had fun." And I go, "Oh my god, it it's amazing." It but if I did it all the time now, I would be like a you know a bitter hag because I just feel like I wasn't having time or energy to do other things. And also everyone is is very young. I mean, my nieces and nephews I saw delivered out of my sister's uh, vagine, and they are in their mid-20s, and one's a physician's yeah. assistant, oh, and one's a... I mean, I've named myself at SNL Nanny SNL, because I'll sit at the rewrite table like, yeah. what is the name of that? Yeah. Who's that detective on yeah. television? I'm like... I call myself Grandpa. Oh, my God. Like, you know? Grandpa, they'll knock on the door and say, we're ready. I'm like, Grandpa, will be right there. It'll be right there, God damn it. But if you have a good night there, you feel like you're 20 again. I mean, you know, you, if you have no, a I night like where... You feel like, I mean, last week I had a really fun sketch I wrote with Kate McKinnon for her and Louis C.K., and it was funny and dirty, and where they were at last call at a bar, and they're just trying to find common ground because they know they're the only two people left. So they're like, wait, you're from Arizona? Oh, my God, I'm from Northern California. That's crazy. (laughs) And um, they they made out in the most disgusting face-eating way you could ever imagine, and uh I just went home on that old school SNL high, just a whole high, you know, like the whole weekend just bouncing off the walls. And then you start going, maybe I could do this all the time. It's like, no, I'm going to do it. I would leave there after a good show. I'd leave there and say, I'm going to be a cast (laughs) edition. I'll do even uh, even odd shows, like the gas rationing. (laughs) Now, now, Twitter, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. You're you're kill me on Twitter. Thank you. You talk about like I was laying on a bed and I was having a great time and I was eating snacks and I was really cozy and everything was just, I felt so great. And then security guard came up and said to me, you know, Target is closed, man. You know, it's like the Tony Bennett routine. People always really respond to my Target tweets. Twitter is just another form for you. Twitter is really, I got very addicted to it just because it's so simple and it's like a video game for comedy writers to just do a one-liner about something. And I started doing these uh, Hey Young Girl tweets. I know, I know, yeah. And I might do a little book of them maybe um, and illustrate it. You know, my nieces, I just used to drive them insane when they were growing up because I was so protective. Give me an example. You said that we think, hey girls, I remember. Um, Hey Young Young girls, keep your boobs in your shirt, your butt in your pants, your eyes on your dreams, <laughs> your head in the cloud, you know, but like you, that kind of thing. But you also say the thing about, you know, if the guy does this. Yeah. What, 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 I remember we um, some- The Hey Young Girls stuff just came out of my nieces because I would bring them to SNL and they were just these drop dead gorgeous girls. And they would have people. I'm not talking about people just checking them out. But like at the if I brought them backstage or whatever, there'd be some some dude that would just end up coming up and saying, you know, really aggressive checking them out. And so they still imitate me, how I would grab them with my meaty Polish farm wife arm <laughs> and go, she's 14. You want to talk about it? I mean, yeah. I would just become this raving, crazy woman looking at them like, Get, you know, and so th- I've always, I'd always be like, are you sexually active? I would always no. want to know all their details no. and everything. Like a character out of a Rock Hudson movie. Yeah. You're the chaperone. Of yeah, the I'm the chaperone that's, that's uh, Get over scurrying here. my son away from the hoochie, the hoochie dancers, you know. Um, you're a woman, and you're a woman in comedy, and comedy has changed uh, a lot over the last 40 years, but I, you know, I feel like it's changed a lot over the last 15 years. It's even more, you've got people who are much more, you know, they're just like the guys, I mean, Sarah Silverman and people who are much more in living color, if you will. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, you know, your assessment of that, how that's changed for women over your 
uh, career? And also, do you think that there's like certain uh, glass ceilings still like on late night comedy shows? Like, do you think they'll ever replace Letterman or like, can a woman do that job? Because you have women hosting daytime shows. Right. And right. Ellen's on during the day. But the big three, the networks, they don't have a woman doing that show. Do you think that'll ever change? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I remember that era where a couple of them were doing it. Joan Rivers and different people were trying it and they were, you know, they were all stand-ups, but they had been around for a but long time and but not lately. So, I feel like now a lot of those young funny girls are either getting their own show, you know, doing a a a show, a television show, but not a talk show. I you know, I mean, Jimmy He's such a fan of everyone and so enthusiastic and joyful about music and everything that that was like a perfect fit for him and hilarious. So he he worked out so great for that. But I think with women, it's also sometimes hard at SNL, like with auditions now where you go, well, you see people and you go, where where are a lot of the super funny, you know, super funny women? And you know they're around. You know they exist. But a lot of them do. They they are young and they, they're aggressively getting – their own shows and stuff like that. The f- second year I was at SNL, second or third, I remember having an agent say to me, um, "Yeah, we got to get you. Uh, you know, we got to get a game plan for you and get you know so you can get get out of here and and get a get a show going right. and all that." And I remember thinking, "What Don't the fuck are they talking ensemble. about?" I'm like, "What are you talking yeah. about? You know, this is like the dream job." So, but I think I think for women, it's just like I've always said about SNL. It's like the the funny rises to the top with it and if somebody's super funny and has abandon and joy and they're not trying you know I don't like ever with a comedy person them acting like someone else or acting dirty just to be funny I'm the filthiest person on earth but if it's not funny dirty if I'm not being funny dirty you know then forget it because there's (laughs) got to be some class to my to my uh, vulva joke if a vulva joke does not have a, a class to it then forget it but you know for a while there some auditions I would watch where girls would come out and just try to just sex it up and be funny and dirty, you know, and it's like, that's well, not funny. women, you feel like, not all of them, certainly, but enough of them, they go out in front of a camera, a lot of them in the comedy world, and they think, feel like, well, I don't want to go too far over this line because I don't want to lose this other right, thing. Right. I, I really would like to kiss Leo in a movie. Right. I want to be, as you much as I think You that don't want to see anyone <clears throat> thinking too hard while they're, you know, the, the greatest auditions at SNL were people that came in purely as themselves, came in, did a bunch of crazy-ass characters, and you just went, this is a force of nature. What is this? What is this human? Like, they are making me laugh so hard, and I don't even know what where they're getting it from. We, we, women have that the condition, though, where it's like, it's like they sit there and they, you know, I mean, I've seen women who they would make fun of actresses. I mean, I'm talking mm-hmm. about comedy. Women. Yeah. They would just tear apart. They would lacerate uh, actresses who they thought were, you know, leaning too much on the sex button. Mm-hmm. And then those comedy actresses became stars and they popped another button and they put the, the makeup on their cleavage and they right. were like, and they were just like, they were camera ready. I mean, they became the thing they made fun of. Yeah. And, and you and you realize for women, that's a tough angle. You know what comedy, I mean? And comedy girls tended to grow up being the goofy looking, you know, the goofy looking ones that weren't getting the attention that yeah. way. So when they become famous and have a lot of uh, money and people putting beautiful dresses on them, yeah. I think they it do changes. go, they do go that way, you know. I mean, I've got a lot of pretty sp- Sparkly pantsuits I wear to the Emmys now, and I really get up my own ass on it because. (laughs) (laughs) Paula Pell will soon be stepping out in those pants for the release of This Is 40, a film she helped produce set to open December 21st. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing comes from WNYC, 
Radio.